Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome, everyone, to the new 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories podcast. Here you'll find a collection of Sherlock Holmes adventures, as well as the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. Some from our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road, and some newly produced, all here for your entertainment. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, a chapter from Arthur Conan Doyle's autobiography. Doyle's book, Memories and Adventures, was published in 1924. Here we'll cover Chapter 11, Homes on the Films, Methods of Construction, Problems, Curious Letters, Some Personal Cases, and Strange Happenings. Chapter 11 is titled, Sidelights on Sherlock Holmes. Hope you enjoy it. Before I leave the subject of the many impersonations of Holmes, I may say that all of them, and all the drawings, are very unlike my own original idea of the man. I saw him as very tall, quote, over six feet, but so excessively lean that he seemed considerably taller, said a study in scarlet, end quote. He had, as I imagined him, a thin razor-legged face with a great hawk's bill of a nose and two small eyes set close together on either side of it. Such was my conception. It chanced, however, that poor Sidney Paget, who, before his premature death, drew all the original pictures, had a younger brother, whose name I think was Walter, who served him as a model. The handsome Walter took the place of the more powerful but uglier Sherlock, and perhaps from the point of view of my lady readers, it was as well. The stages followed the type set up by the pictures. Films, of course, were unknown when the stories appeared, and when these rights were finally discussed and a small sum offered for them by a French company, it seemed treasure trove and I was very glad to accept. Afterwards, I had to buy them back again at exactly ten times what I had received, so the deal was a disastrous one, but now they've been done by the Stoll Company, with Eel Norwood as Holmes, and it was worth all the expense to get so fine a production. Norwood has since played the part on the stage, and won the approbation of the London public. He has that rare quality which can only be described as glamour, which compels you to watch an actor eagerly, even when he's doing nothing. He has the brooding eye which excites expectation, and he has also a quite unrivaled power of disguise. My only criticism of the films is that they introduce telephones, motor cars, and other luxuries of which the Victorian homes never dreamed. People have often asked me whether I knew the end of a home story before I started it. Of course I do. One could not possibly steer a course if one did not know one's destination. The first thing is to get your idea. Having got that key idea, one's next task is to conceal it and lay emphasis upon everything which can make for a different explanation. Holmes, however, can see all the fallacies of the alternatives and arrives more or less dramatically at the true solution by steps which he can describe and justify. 
He shows his powers by what the South Americans now call Sherlock Holmitos, which means clever little deductions which often have nothing to do with the matter in hand, but impress the reader with a general sense of power. The same effect is gained by his offhand allusion to other cases. Heaven knows how many titles I've thrown about in a casual way, and how many readers have begged me to satisfy their curiosity as to Rigoletto and his abominable wife, the adventure of the tired captain, or the curious experience of the Patterson family in the island of Ufa. Once or twice, as in The Adventure of the Second Stain, which in my judgment is one of the neatest of the stories, I did actually use the title years before I wrote a story to correspond. There are some questions concerned with particular stories which turn up periodically from every quarter of the globe. In The Adventure of the Priory School, Holmes remarks in his offhand way that by looking at a bicycle track on a damp moor, one can say which way it was heading. I had so many remonstrances upon this point, varying from pity to anger, that I took out my bicycle and tried. I had imagined that the observations of the way in which the track of the hind wheel overlaid the track of the front one, when the machine was not running dead straight, would show the direction. I found that my correspondents were right, and I was wrong, for this would be the same whichever way the cycle was moving. On the other hand, the real solution was much simpler, for on an undulating moor the wheels would make a much deeper impression uphill and a more shallow one downhill, so Holmes was justified of his wisdom after all. Sometimes I have got upon dangerous ground where I have taken risks through my own want of knowledge of the correct atmosphere. I have, for example, never been a racing man, and yet I ventured to write Silver Blaze, in which the mystery depends upon the laws of training and racing. The story is all right, and Holmes may have been at the top of his form, but my ignorance cries aloud to heaven. I read an excellent and very damaging criticism of the story in some sporting paper, written clearly by a man who did know, in which he explained the exact penalties which would have come upon everyone concerned if they had acted as I described. Half would have been in jail, and the other half warned off the turf forever. However, I have never been nervous about details, and one must be masterful sometimes. When an alarmed editor wrote to me once, "'There is no second line of rails at that point,' I answered, "'I make one.' On the other hand, there are cases where accuracy is essential." I do not wish to be ungrateful to Holmes, who has been a good friend to me in many ways. If I have sometimes been inclined to weary of him, it is because his character admits of no light or shade. He is a calculating machine, and anything you add to that simply weakens the effect. Thus the variety of the stories must depend upon the romance and compact handling of the plots. I would say a word for Watson also, who in the course of seven volumes never shows one gleam of humor or makes one single joke. To make a real character, one must sacrifice everything to consistency and remember Goldsmith's criticism of Johnson, that he would make the little fishes talk like whales. I do not think that I ever realized what a living, actual personality Holmes had become to the more guileless readers, until I heard of the very pleasing story of the charbonks of French schoolboys who, when asked what they wanted to see first in London, replied unanimously that they wanted to see Mr. Holmes's lodgings in Baker Street. Many have asked me which house it is, but that is a point which, for excellent reasons, I will not decide. There are certain Sherlock Holmes stories, apocryphal I need not say, which go round and round the press and turn up at fixed intervals with the regularity of a comet. One is the story of the cabman who is supposed to have taken me to a hotel in Paris. 
"'Dr. Doyle!' he cried, gazing at me fixedly. "'I perceive from your appearance that you have been recently at Constantinople. "'I reason to think also that you have been at Buda, "'and I perceive some indication that you are not far from Milan.' "'Wonderful! Five francs at the secret of how you did it!' "'Oh, I looked at the labels posted on your trunk,' said the astute cabby. "'Another perennial is of the woman who is said to have consulted Sherlock. "'I'm greatly puzzled, sir. "'In one week I've lost a motor horn, a brush, a box of golf balls, a dictionary, and a bootjack. "'Can you explain it?' "'Nothing simpler, madame,' said Sherlock. "'It's clear that your neighbor keeps a goat.' There was a third about how Sherlock entered heaven, and by virtue of his power of observation at once greeted Adam, but the point is perhaps too anatomical for further discussion. I suppose that every author receives a good many curious letters. Certainly I have done so. Quite a number of these have been from Russia. When they have been in the vernacular, I have been compelled to take them as read, but when they have been in English, they have been among the most curious in my collection. There was one lady who began all her epistles with the words, "'Good Lord!' "'Another had a large amount of guile underlying her simplicity. "'Writing from Warsaw, she stated that she had been bedridden for two years "'and that my novels had been her only, etc., etc. "'So touched was I by this flattering statement "'that I had once prepared an autographed parcel of them "'to complete the fair invalid's collection. "'By good luck, however, I met a brother author on the same day "'to whom I recounted the touching incident. "'With a cynical smile, he drew an identical letter from his pocket.' His novels had also been for two years her only, etc., etc. I do not know how many more the lady had written to, but if, as I imagine, her correspondence had extended to several countries, she must have amassed a rather interesting library. We'll return to Sidelight on Sherlock Holmes, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. In response to my letter, there arrived at my hotel a very repentant clerk, who expressed his sorrow at the incident, "'but kept on repeating the phrase, "'I assure you, sir, that it was bona fide.' "'What do you mean by bona fide?' I asked. "'Well, sir,' he replied, "'my mates in the shop told me that you had been knighted, "'and that when a man was knighted he changed his name, "'and that you had taken that one. "'I need not say that my annoyance vanished, "'and that I laughed as heartily as his pals were probably doing round the corner. A few of the problems which have come my way have been very similar to some which I had invented for the exhibition of the reasoning of Mr. Holmes. I might perhaps quote one in which that gentleman's method of thought was copied with complete success. The case was as follows. A gentleman had disappeared. He had drawn a bank balance of forty pounds, which was known to be on him. It was feared that he had been murdered for the sake of the money. He had at last been heard of stopping at a large hotel in London, having come from the country that day. In the evening he went to a music hall performance, came out of it about ten o'clock, returned to his hotel, changed his evening clothes, which were found in his room next day, and disappeared utterly. No one saw him leave the hotel, but a man occupying a neighboring room declared that he had heard him moving during the night. A week had elapsed at the time that I was consulted, but the police had discovered nothing. Where was the man? These were the whole of the facts as communicated to me by his relatives in the country. Endeavoring to see the matter through the eyes of Mr. Holmes, I answered by return mail that he was evidently either in Glasgow or in Edinburgh. It proved later that he had, as a fact, gone to Edinburgh, though in the week that had passed he had moved to another part of Scotland. There I should leave the matter, for, as Dr. Watson has often shown, a solution explained is a mystery spoiled. 
At this stage, the reader can lay down the book and show how simple it all is by working out the problem for himself. He has all the data which were ever given to me. For the sake of those, however, who have no turn for such conundrums, I will try to indicate the links which make the chain. The one advantage which I possessed was that I was familiar with the routine of London hotels, though I fancy it differs little from that of hotels elsewhere. The first thing was to look at the facts and separate what was certain from what was conjecture. It was all certain except the statement of the person who heard the missing man in the night. How could he tell such a sound from any other sound in a large hotel? That point could be disregarded if it traversed the general conclusions. The first clear deduction was that the man had meant to disappear. Why else should he draw all his money? He had got out of the hotel during the night. But there is a night porter in all hotels, and it is impossible to get out without his knowledge when the door is once shut. The door is shut after the theatre-goers return, say at twelve o'clock. Therefore the man left the hotel before twelve o'clock. He had come from the music-hall at ten, had changed his clothes, and had departed with his bag. No one had seen him do so. The inference is that he had done it at the moment when the hall was full of the returning guests, which is from eleven to eleven-thirty. After that hour, even if the door was still open, there were few people coming and going so that he with his bag would certainly have been seen. Having got so far upon firm ground, we now ask ourselves why a man who desires to hide himself should go out at such an hour. If he intended to conceal himself in London, he need never have gone to the hotel at all. Clearly, then, he was going to catch a train which would carry him away. But a man who is deposited by a train in any provincial station during the night is likely to be noticed, and he might be sure that when the alarm was raised and his description given, some guard or porter would remember him. Therefore, his destination would be some large town which he would reach as a terminus where all his fellow passengers would disembark and where he would lose himself in the crowd. When one turns up the timetable and sees that the great Scotch expresses bound for Edinburgh and Glasgow start about midnight, the goal is reached. As for his dress suit, the fact that he abandoned it proved that he intended to adopt a line of life where there were no social amenities. This deduction also proved to be correct. I quote such a case in order to show that the general lines of reasoning advocated by Holmes have a real practical application to life. In another case, where a girl had become engaged to a young foreigner who suddenly disappeared, I was able, by a similar process of deduction, to show her very clearly both whither he had gone and how unworthy he was of her affections. On the other hand, these semi-scientific methods are occasionally labored and slow as compared with the results of the rough-and-ready practical man. Lest I should seem to have been throwing bouquets either to myself or to Mr. Holmes, let me state that on the occasion of a burglary of the village inn, within a stone throw of my house, the village constable, with no theories at all, had seized the culprit while I had got no further than that he was a left-handed man with nails in his boots. The unusual or dramatic effects which lead to the invocation of Mr. Holmes in fiction are, of course, great aids to him in reaching a conclusion. It is the case where there is nothing to get hold of, which is the deadly one. I heard of such a one in America, which would certainly have presented a formidable problem. A gentleman of blameless life, starting off for a Sunday evening walk with his family, suddenly observed that he had forgotten something. He went back into the house, a door of which was still open, and he left his people waiting for him outside. He never reappeared, and from that day to this there has been no clue as to what befell him. This was certainly one of the strangest cases of which I had ever heard in real life. Another very singular case came within my own observation. 
"'It was sent to me by an eminent London publisher. "'This gentleman had in his employment "'a head of department whose name we shall take as Musgrave. "'He was a hard-working person, "'with no special feature in his character. "'Mr. Musgrave died, "'and several years after his death "'the letter was received addressed to him, "'in the care of his employers. "'It bore the postmark of a tourist resort "'in the west of Canada, "'and had the note, "'Conful Films upon the outside of the envelope, "'with the words, "'Report Sigh,' S.Y., in one corner. The publishers naturally opened the envelope as they had no note of the dead man's relatives. Inside were two blank sheets of paper. The letter, I may add, was registered. The publisher, being unable to make anything of this, sent it on to me, and I submitted the blank sheets to every possible chemical and heat test, with no result whatsoever. Beyond the fact that the writing appeared to be that of a woman, there is nothing to add to this account. The matter was, and remains, an insoluble mystery. How the correspondent could have something so secret to say to Mr. Musgrave, and yet not be aware that this person had been dead for several years, is very hard to understand. Or why blank sheets should be so carefully registered through the mail. I may add that I did not trust the sheets to my own chemical tests, but had the best expert advice without getting any result. Considered as a case, it was a failure, and a very tantalizing one. Mr. Sherlock Holmes has always been a fair mark for practical jokers, and I have had numerous bogus cases of various degrees of ingenuity, marked cards, mysterious warnings, cipher messages, and other curious communications. It is astonishing the amount of trouble which some people will take with no object save a mystification. Upon one occasion, as I was entering the hall to take part in an amateur billiard competition, I was handed by the attendant a small packet which had been left for me. Upon opening it, I found a piece of ordinary green chalk, such as is used in billiards. I was amused by the incident, and I put the chalk into my waistcoat pocket, and used it during the game. Afterward, I continued to use it until one day, some months later, as I rubbed the tip of my cue, the face of the chalk crumbled in, and I found it was hollow. From the recess thus exposed, I drew out a small slip of paper with the words, From Arsene Lupin to Sherlock Holmes. Imagine the state of mind of the joker who took such trouble to accomplish such a result. One of the mysteries submitted to Mr. Holmes was rather upon the psychic plane, and therefore beyond his powers. The facts, as alleged, are most remarkable, though I have no proof of their truth, save that the lady wrote earnestly and gave both her name and address. The person, whom we'll call Mrs. Seagrave, had been given a curious second-hand ring, snake-shaped and dull gold. This she took from her finger at night. One night she slept with it on and had a fearsome dream in which she dreamed to be pushing off some furious creature which fastened its teeth into her arm. On awakening, the pain in the arm continued, and next day the imprint of a double set of teeth appeared upon the arm, with one tooth of the lower jaw missing. The marks were in the shape of blue-black bruises, which had not broken the skin. "'I do not know,' says my correspondent, "'what made me think the ring had anything to do with the matter. "'But I took a dislike to the thing "'and did not wear it for some months, "'when, being on a visit, "'I took to wearing it again. "'To make a long story short, "'the same thing happened, "'and the lady settled the matter forever "'by dropping her ring into the hottest corner "'of the kitchen range. "'This curious story, "'which I believe to be genuine, "'may not be as supernatural as it seems.' It is well known that in some subjects a strong mental impression does produce a physical effect. Thus a very vivid nightmare dream with the impression of a bite might conceivably produce the mark of a bite. 
Such cases are well attested in medical annals. The second incident would, of course, arise by unconscious suggestion from the first. Nonetheless, it is a very interesting little problem, whether psychic or material. Buried treasures are naturally among the problems which have come to Mr. Holmes. One genuine case was occupied by a diagram here reproduced. It refers to an India man which was wrecked upon the South African coast in the year 1782. If I were a younger man, I should be seriously inclined to go personally and look into the matter. The ship contained a remarkable treasure, including, I believe, the old crown regalia of Delhi. It is surmised that they buried these near the coast, and that this chart is a note of the spot. Each India man in those days had its own semaphore code, and it is conjectured that the three marks upon the left are signals from a three-armed semaphore. Some record of their meaning might perhaps even now be found in the old papers of the India office. The circle upon the right gives the compass bearings. The larger semicircle may be the curved edge of a reef or of a rock. The figures above are the indications of how to reach the X which marks the treasure. Possibly they may give the bearings as 186 feet from the four upon the semicircle. The scene of the wreck is a lonely part of the country, but I shall be surprised if sooner or later someone does not seriously set to work to solve the mystery. Indeed, at the present moment, there is a small company working to that end. I must now apologize for this digressive chapter and return to the orderly sequence of my career. Thanks for joining us for this unique story, Sidelight on Sherlock Holmes, from the book Memories and Adventures by Arthur Conan Doyle. We do appreciate reviews very much, and we have a few we'd like to share. The first five stars from Fran. Well read with a pleasant voice, with just enough drama. That one from Fran's a star, Apple Podcast, Australia. And this one, excellent, five stars. My favorite podcast. From this woman, so judgy, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, great podcast for Sherlock fans. I can't get enough of this podcast. I play it at work and when I'm commuting to work. I've listened to almost all recordings and wait every week for the next one. I really appreciate what you do, Mr. John. Keep up the good work. Down from Aaron, 123, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, Favorite Homes Podcast, five stars. This is my favorite Homes Podcast I've found. Even now, when I read home stories, your voices for Watson and Sherlock are the ones I hear in my head. Nice work. Down from D.W. Wooden, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to leave these reviews. They really help us a lot. They tell us where you're from and why you enjoy our show. And that also helps new listeners find us. Thank you so much. We'll be back next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new Sherlock Holmes adventure. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.